Good evening. I'm Tina Rasmussen. I'm Steven Snyder. And welcome to the fourth session of the Jhana Practice Group. I think it's April 2008 now, isn't it? Yeah. And um, just as a reminder, we, um, we're offering this not as scholars or historians, but really as practitioners. And so um, our intention really is to offer the practice as we did it and learned it from Pauk's hideout. The focus of what we're offering, again, is the jhana practice, which is concentration focusing on one object to the exclusion of everything else, which brings about both a unification of the mind, which leads to the concentration, and as a byproduct, sometimes the jhanas. Um, but even more importantly than that, really the purification of mind, which is, is what the practice was designed for. Tonight, in the progression of what we've been offering, Stephen is going to be talking about effort. Indeed. Uh, effort is a great uh, topic for this practice. It's really the, the lifeblood of the purification of mind practice that we know as jhana practice. And this evening I'm going to talk about the role of the meditator's intention for practice, uh, the attitude specifically, openness, acceptance, surrender, how to work with the commitment and quality of practice, what, how, what role, role persistence plays, and how to tell when it's being under and overutilized. And then uh, I'm going to talk about uh, the commitment and quality of practice. Uh, the first, the first uh, aspect of this is really uh, for the meditator to have a clarity about why they're engaging this practice. And when, for the people that begin retreat that have worked with us, it's often a discussion we'll want to have with them early on. Really, why, why are you engaging this? Why, uh, for example, Greg's going off to Forest Refuge to practice with the side out, and why, why give up? Why go away from your life and shut down your life for weeks and sometimes months? What's really being engaged? What's really being drawn and attracted? That's really what you want to explore. And generally, the the intentions that don't work as well with this practice are the intentions around attainment, the intentions around bliss states, because really, as Tina said, the practice is a purification of mind practice. It's really a practice that unifies the mind, it engages the mind, and by doing so, it allows a focus to develop, a focus on the object, and it allows the mind to relax in other areas. So it really allows that tranquility that's always present to be felt, to be experienced, and really to be generated in all aspects of life. The better intention for the practice, as you can probably figure out, is really the purification. As soon as this meditation begins, as soon as one undertakes it in earnest, the purification begins. Sometimes it's purification by stillness and silence. Sometimes it's purification by engaging what's difficult and what's hard. The kalashas, as they say in Buddhism, the defilements, the hindrances, those are going to come up for almost everyone when one gets concentrated. And those are needing to be dealt with when the meditator can't stay with the object, when the meditator is, can't find the object, or there's just too much interference to really get uh, a good meditative bead on the object. So the next aspect of effort is the meditator's attitude. And, and I 
present attitude in three with three parts, and that is the openness. And the openness is really a willingness to show up, to meditate each, each period of meditation, to treat each meditation, each breath as brand new, and to be open to whatever is, is actually being experienced in that moment. So it's not just trying for aspects or feelings of clarity or connection with the object. It's not just looking for the stillness, the peace, the tranquility. If that's what's present, then great. That's what's met. That's what's developed. And if that's not what's met, if what's met is the defilements, if it's doubt, if it's uh, greed, if it's fear, aversion, that's what needs to be addressed to the extent it's in the way of the practice, to the extent it's in the way of staying with the object. And then the acceptance is t- dovetails into the openness, which is really whatever is, hap- is arising is what's welcome. It's not trying to condition or say, I need this to happen or I need that not to happen. Uh, it's just what, what is this moment? What is this breath? Sometimes the meditation comes down to what, can we, what are we meeting in this breath? And that's really uh, the best we can do. Sometimes we can't go a whole meditation period. So it's just really showing up, having that openness, the acceptance, and it's also surrendering. It's surrendering our opinions. It's surrendering our ideas about practice. It's surrendering what what we want to attain or what we want to get out of the practice. Because simply by showing up and being open and accepting, having an accepting attitude, the practice is working, the purification is working. So surrender of, of... having it our way is very, very important. The way that we like to work with people with this practice is also a recognizing and an appreciation for the meditator's specific abilities and gifts. Really, what's the meditator good at? Some people are very good at doing long sitting. Others are not. Others have a very high quality of meditation, but they can't sit for a long time. So rather than trying to do a one-size-fits-all and say everybody has to do it just this one way, particularly on the solo retreats, we work with people to really find what's really working, what's really the quality of their meditation, and how can that really be enhanced. And that helps quite a bit rather than, as I say, trying to just, just do it in one fashion. A big part of effort is persistence. And persistence, as I recall, the suttas, the Buddha talked about persistence as being akin to a lute, a stringed instrument of his day, where if the persistence was too strong, if the string was too tight, you wouldn't get the right note and you were in danger of the string breaking. And the way that we can tell if there's too much persistence is that there's a restlessness and there can be an anxiety and almost always there's a striving. There's something that we're trying to get. We're trying to get that deep meditation we had yesterday. We're trying to get that stillness we felt this morning. We're trying to get that, uh, we think there's a jhana factor, you know. I'm sure PT arose, I want that again. It's, it's this that we need to watch out for because that just gets in our way. The mind is trying to project and f- have us run in one direction and it's just a mistake. And the, the flip side, of course, is too little persistence. And too little persistence generates sloth, torpor, laziness, this kind of attitude. So really, we can tell when, when our persistence really isn't being applied properly. And usually, it's because we're either 
in, in the first instance of, of too much persistence, we're just grasping too tight, where really that greed is really kicking in for wanting a certain thing to happen. And the opposite, the too little persistence, is we're trying to keep something away, we're trying to avoid and not deal with something. And that's why the, the sloth and torpor really come up in the laziness and the sleepiness, because there's something that's probably being avoided that's actually present in the experience. So the Buddha talked about it, of course, as the proper tension on the string. So it can be played, the notes sound proper, and everything can progress just fine. So that's just a little, uh, little metaphor to keep in mind. Now the commitment in practice is the meditator's specific commitment to return again and again to the practice. As a householder, this means engaging this practice in daily meditation. And the Buddha used the examples, I recall, of, I think it was called a thread of water, and it was the old uh, example of the, the one drop on the water again and, or excuse me, one drop of water on the rock again and again, and over time bores through the, the most dense rock. And this is really what the commitment is in meditative practice. It's the showing up again, it's for the meditator on retreat or the monastic, it's the meditating each meditation period day after day. And for the householder, it's if there's one period of meditation or two periods of meditation a day, it's showing up for those. It's not a matter of, do I feel like meditating? It's this is the time that meditation occurs. This is the discipline that I bring to this. And, and I don't even engage on whether I want to do it or not. It's just this is when it happens. There's a quality of effort also in this practice, which is a investigation of quality. And by that, what I mean is when, when the awareness is on the Anapana spot, and the, the object here in this practice, we're framing it as the knowing the sensation of movement of breath as it crosses what we're calling the Anapana spot, which is a spot between the nostrils and the upper lip. Upper lip. So it's, it's not the actual breath, it's the sensation of movement of breath that we're knowing at the spot. And there's a way that we can detect the quality of when that's working and when that's not working. And probably a good example of that is if we were to be swimming in a stream and we're swimming downstream and there's a current in the stream, certainly if we're paying attention, if we're knowing the movement of the stream, we can feel where that current is and we can feel when we're right in the heart of the current and we're really being pulled along. And this is what, this is what it's like in this practice when the awareness is on the object there's a way that the meditator can know there's an inclining, there's a little bit of shifting that one makes within one's attitude, within one's persistence, one's effort, where that quality can be detected. And so a lot of the people who are doing the silent retreats with us, that's one of the discussions we have early on, is really to identify this quality for you as a meditator. What does it feel like for you? How do you know the quality? And every one of us is different in how we perceive and how we know this. So this requires some investigation also in seeing how this works for us. Because this tells us also when we're outside this current, when we're moving away from it, and maybe having the calatias come up, the defilements and hindrances come up, 
to be worked with. And then there's a returning. That quality can be returned to. That current can be felt and we can be swept along in the direction that the meditation is going. Probably the most challenging aspect of this practice is the surrender of personal effort. And I know that's sort of paradoxical because I've just talked about all these ways that we develop and, and tell how the effort is appropriate and working just fine. But there's a, there's a kind of a balance here where there's a personal effort. There's really what you're bringing and you're doing as the meditator. And there's also what I'm going to call uh, universal effort. There's a way that there's that current in the stream example I was just talking about. There's a way that there's something more than just us and something we're opening to in this practice with the, with the concentration, the tranquility and stillness that come. There's a lot of power, a lot of force behind that as well. And there's times when the meditation is going uh, in a direction where there's deep stillness and deep silence. And the med- meditator is nonetheless staying on the object, which again is the knowing the sensation of movement of breath crossing the Anapana spot. And the meditator is having a great quality of effort, and the meditation is really drawing one along down this current in the stream. And at those times, really, it, it's sort of not early in the practice, but, but mid-level and later in the practice, the meditator really has to make, has to really take, take steps to lessen their personal effort. And the, the sensation in the body is almost that of slightly leaning back on your meditation cushion or your chair. It's just that slight relaxing that we can feel in our bodies when we do that. And there's a way that there's an allowing of this universal awareness and energy to start moving and connecting in with the object. And the easy way to tell if this is being done at an appropriate time is that the practice will carry it. There'll be a depth of practice. The current will be felt stronger. So the meditator can know, yes, this, you know, again, it's not mentalizing, but the meditator just knows this was appropriate to do. And the way to tell when it's too much or inappropriate is if the meditator backs off their effort ever so slightly, like you would lessen your foot on the gas of the car. If the car begins to slow, if if the meditation begins to slow in the sense that the object is getting difficult to find or it's not staying locked in there, that's usually a sign that it's, it's premature to lessen the personal effort. And it's, not, uh, it's time to, again, assert it uh, at that, in that moment. So there's a great deal of trust in the practice as well, of really feeling this larger movement of energy and awareness within the practice. And ultimately in the practice, we really get more and more out of the way. As we uh, talk about it in the book, it's that thinning of the sense of me. And the thinning of the sense of me is also the engaging of the kalashas, the, the defilements and the hindrances. It's meeting those, it's being present with those when they're there, when they're present in the meditation, 
to the extent they're in the way. And it's just being there and allowing them the hindrance or defilement to be present. And just, in effect, we're witnessing its expressing itself in our meditation. And simply by being there, without wanting to manage it, without wanting to change it, without wanting to condition it, to run from it, to dive into it, it begins to lose some of its power. And when it lessens sufficiently that the meditator can return to the object of meditation, then they do. But that adds a kind of energy and power to the meditation. And it allows the meditator then, when the moments of stillness and silence, when the, the, the deep universal awareness and energy are moving, to really be willing to be present with that as well. So there's a great deal of trust in this, of really recognizing what's happening and, in effect, surrendering to what's happening. And I think the surrendering is a piece that I see coming up a lot in the practice. There's the surrendering, as I mentioned earlier, of being with what's happening in the meditation and surrendering expectation. It's surrendering having it our way. And it's also being willing to surrender how we conduct ourselves, how we manage hindrances and defilements in life because however you manage in life is not going to work in this practice. When these hindrances and defilements arise, you can't use all the nice strategies that we have in normal life. You're not going to have other people to go uh, visit. You're not going to have distractions of television or you know, all the social distractions that we all know. Those just aren't going to be there. It's you and the practice. And you're not going to get relief probably if you go to the teacher. They're going to send you back... Uh, back on your cushion. So there's no hope anywhere. Hope is lost. <laughs> and the effort is really a little bit different for the householder and the retreat and the monastic. For the householder, the, the effort is a finding the object in the daily meditation and being with the object to the highest quality that they can during their daily meditation. And then when they're outside of meditation, when they're in their daily life, working and shopping and visiting, it's just noticing. Can they know the object? Can they know the sensation of movement of breath crossing the Anapana spot? And of course, they're not going to know it to a deep experiential uh, manner that they do in meditation, but it's, it can be known very lightly. It can be known in a way that there's still a slight continuity of practice. And for the retreat and the monastic, of course, it's every meditation, it's every breath of meditation being with the object. It's when they arise, moving slowly enough that they're staying precisely on the object. They're allowing that object to just be penetrated deeper and deeper with effort, with energy. And it's moving throughout the day, whatever they're doing. But again, they're moving slow enough to really keep that. It's the continuity that the retreat and monastic really work with. It's getting to where there's little difference between meditating and being in the object and moving around in their day when they have to go eat or bathe or what have you. It's that continuity of knowing the object. And that takes a lot of time. and It takes a lot of persistence returning to the object, realizing that it's off the object, one's off the object. It's no criticism. It's no blame. It's no judgment. 
It's just like you're walking with a small child, and they're new to be walking. And on one side are these bushes, and on the other side is the street. And you want them to walk on their own. They're walking in front of you. And as they turn to the street, you gently just bring them back to the center of the sidewalk. And when they walk towards the bushes, you bring them back to the center. You don't scold them. You don't yell at them. You're not angry. You're not harsh. It's just it's this little child. What do they know? You know, you're trying to teach them. And in the same way with this practice, we're really trying to train the personal awareness to really move in the same direction as the universal awareness is moving with the object. Just that returning and that penetrating of the object, knowing it, knowing that deep stillness, that object. The final thing I want to say is that I, I really want to, want to encourage the, the lay people and the householders out there that are engaging this as a daily practice. This is a really excellent daily practice. It's not a practice just for retreat. It's a great practice to really collect and unify the mind and really apply it to the object. And again, as I said before, this really allows a kind of freedom and a kind of spaciousness around what the person is doing in the one instance. So in the one instance, they're doing this, and they're applying the concentration here, and then here, and then here. Not together, not four or five places, but just the one place. And that means the mind can relax in all the other places, in all the other areas. So it really allows a kind of relaxation and peacefulness. The tranquility really can start developing and being expressed. And as that's felt, that allows greater ease in the body, which again, allows the meditator to stay even more deeply on the object in meditation and to notice it when they're moving throughout their day. When I first began meditating, I did, uh, started with a concentration practice for about the first two years, and it was tremendous for me. When I first sat, I believe I could sit about three minutes without jumping up out of, off the cushion. And I think over, it took about six months or so before I could finally sit for about half an hour without being uh, crazy. But it was constantly just having this, I, I did a, a counting of breath practice, which is part of how we uh, present, and the side out presents the Anapanasati meditation here. But I just did the counting of just returning again and again to the counting, and each time I lost the number, or I found that I was you know, 10 or 20 numbers beyond my endpoint, I knew that clearly I had uh, you know, gotten distracted. So again, just coming back, it's that coming back and returning, returning, returning. And it's really just having a lot of compassion for ourselves because we really have a lifetime of conditioning that we're going to meet in this practice. And so to not expect that one is going to just be able to sit down, go deeply into it, not have to deal with any personal issues, uh, have the nimitta, have the, the object, uh, the sign of concentration and access concentration arise, what we call the nimitta, and then have the nimitta merge with the, with the anapana spot and draw the meditator into first jhana, it's probably not going to happen that way quickly. It's going to take time, and it's going to take persistence, right persistence. It's going to take a certain amount of, of tenderness, a certain amount of awareness, again, of finding that current in the stream of our own practice and letting that draw us deeper in, into the stillness and practice. Anyway, that's all I wanted to share for this evening. Do you want to add anything to effort? Yeah, I, I have a couple of um, uh, perspectives, I think, to add to what Stephen has said. One is um, 
that I've found it useful, and, and we've often talked about the the Taoist yin and yang symbol. Is everyone familiar with that? Yeah, so, you know, for anyone who's not, who might be listening, it's, uh, the, the symbol visually is a circle with a line, a curved line through the middle, and one side is white and one is black, but then in the middle of the white is a tiny black dot, and in the middle of the black is a tiny white dot. And so yin and yang symbolize um, different kinds of energy and that make up creation. I'm not a Taoist, so if I'm getting this wrong, please excuse me. But I, I do find it a helpful way of thinking about effort because the yang energy is active and it goes out and it does. And it's, it's much more, you know, traditionally it's considered male. But, you know, of course, males and females both have yang energy. But it's just to give you a flavor of it. It's, it's very active and it's proactive. Um, so it's more of a doing kind of energy, whereas the um, yin energy is a more receptive energy. So it's receiving what is coming to it, which is more of a female energy. But yet within each of those is the other. And so in this practice, there's a real uh, skillfulness of knowing where the yang energy is skillful and where the yin energy is skillful, which is really, I think, what Stephen was describing and talking about, um, you know, where do we, where are we active, and then how to uh, use skillful means to to go more to the yin side. So there's still an, I mean, if you could call it effort. We normally think of effort as being more the yang doing, but the yin is also receiving. And there is something I think if you think of effort differently, as more the sitting and waiting. In this practice, there's, there, it does take some effort at the beginning when you're really trying to stay with your object to the exclusion of everything else. It takes more of a sense of, I'm doing this. You know? I'm, you know, if you look at the jhana factors of applying attention and the sustaining, there's a sense of doing something there. But then, even in one sitting, you know, if you're doing this on a daily practice, but especially on a retreat, I think it applies in both. At some point, there's a settling, and the practice starts doing you. You know, I mean, ultimately, the idea that there's a me and there's a, a universal energy is that duality kind of drops out of the practice. But I think there's a usefulness of holding both the yin and the yang energy together. And um, when the yang isn't necessary anymore to let the yin be predominant. And so, like, for us, on a long retreat, after some period at the beginning when the stillness starts, the yang energy really takes over, or the yin energy, the receptive energy takes over for a lot of the practice because you're really, the practice starts doing you in a way. And so, but then if you, you know, if there's too much of that, then the alertness drops. So even with the yin energy, there's still the circle of the yang in the middle. So, you know, there's, to me, that's a way of framing it that keeps it as a whole, where effort is really seen as one thing, but there's just two different kinds that we're always using skillful means to balance back and forth between the two. And then the other, the other thing I would say around effort is that I like to think about this practice sometimes as um, like building a muscle, like if you're, you know, doing bicep curls or something, that... In the beginning, there's, say that you're, you know, don't have a lot of strength. It's going to take a lot of effort to get those muscles strong again. 
And so every time we sit down to practice, whether we're, a, you know, a, a lay person and we're just doing this for, you know, some period every day and then going off to work or on retreat, either way, we're building a muscle. And so every time that you sit and the attention is brought back to the object, that is cultivating something extremely wholesome, which is concentration, which is essential for Buddhist practice and for wisdom, you know, to, to not be distracted and especially to not be distracted by the hindrances. So this practice, I think, you know, the concentra- concentration practice is really building that muscle of being disinterested in our story. That is what we're building, is a lack of interest, really, because we can stay on this other object. You see? So if we're, if we're constantly distracted, it means that we care more about the hindrance or the thought or the, you know, whatever than the object. But as we build that muscle and, and something comes up and it tries to pull us away from the object, we lift, we lift the, the weight and we build that muscle a little stronger every time we don't turn away. There's something that gets cultivated every single time that we stay with the object that becomes stronger and stronger, and then at some point you have a really strong muscle. And when things come up, you just don't care. You know, you're just not that interested. It's not that they're never going to come up. But the strength of that muscle that turns away from those distractions and hindrances and, and places that we suffer ultimately become stronger and stronger, and then there isn't as much effort required because the muscle's built. You know what I mean? The effort required maybe to lift 20-pound weight when you have a weak muscle is going to be feel just tr- overwhelming. But when you have a strong muscle, that might feel like no weight at all. And yet you might be putting in you know, less effort to lift more weight. So I think this practice is like that, where over time as we do this over and over again, over the hours that we sit and practice, whether it's at home or whether it's on a retreat, those muscles get stronger. And that's part of why the effort is less, because we have more capacity to, to lift that weight or to stay with our object. And then ultimately that gives us access to so many other things that if we didn't have that capacity, wouldn't be possible. Those are just some of my thoughts about effort. So we'd like to hear from you if you have questions about effort. Uh, we do have a mic here if you're willing to be recorded. And if not, you can state your question and we'll repeat it for the listening audience. Or questions about anything else. Maybe you can say something about um, when you were talking about what you consider long, when, what you consider long meditations or short meditations, short sittings. You know, when you were saying sometimes that people have the capacity for longer sittings in uh, other people have an intense experience in a shorter sitting. Maybe just say something about that. What some examples are in terms of how much time is up to that? Yeah, or just how much uh, time? Uh, yeah, I'm just curious what 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 your uh, what you mean by that. I mean, what what you're talking about? Well, there are certainly some people who can sit and can sit comfortably for hours without much of a problem. And there are others where sometimes 
There are times when that might be too challenging, and there are some people who really just need, as Tina said, they need to build up that muscle. So they may be starting with 40 minutes or an hour meditation. That's the maximum that they can do. Because initially you don't want it to be uh, completely unbearable where it's just uh, a white-knuckle experience. But if it's a little bit challenging, that's okay. If you're comfortable for most of it or you're not too uncomfortable, I'll say it that way. Uh, But if there is a little bit of stretch there, that's good. Somebody's a brand new meditator, an hour's probably going to feel like a really long time. If they've never meditated, that just seems like, why would anyone do that for an hour? You know, whereas if somebody's been meditating for many years, that might not seem like a very big deal if somebody has done retreats. So, uh, you know, I think some of what is long and short is actually in the mind. When we started doing this retreat, and, and the side owl asked us to sit for very long numbers of hours that we weren't used to, I didn't think I was going to be able to do it. And I told him I didn't think I could sit for four hours in a jhana for four hours. And I had to. I didn't have a choice. That was his requirement. If I had to do that for two months and try and not do it, that was what he required. It gave me a different frame of reference because he, he totally thought it was doable. And it, and it was. And the other thing that, again, I would say, and we talked about, I think we've talked about this before, is that there's a big difference between an absorption concentration practice and a momentary concentration practice like the mindfulness. I know people do mindfulness practice and sit for hours and hours, but we both found it to be very different where doing those practices, we didn't have such a natural inclination to sit for three hours. Whereas doing this, because there's, there is so much stillness and ultimately absorption into the jhana, there can be a real ability to sit longer. The more you can come in with beginner's mind, I think, the better. That's really important. It's, it's really, um, could be a problem. It could be another problem to engage if someone knows a lot about the practice. Because there's a tendency we have, if we, if we all drive from here to San Francisco every day, you know, we know the route, we know all the various landmarks, and to really have a sort of a fresh mind about it, if we're driving with someone else, to really not pay attention to what we know as landmarks, what we've heard about as landmarks. In this case, you're, you're, you have the experience, but if you don't have the experience, but you've seen travel films again and again on how to drive to San Francisco, you would be looking for certain things. So it's, and, and so the mind starts projecting, okay, am I, am I here? I see a mountain. Am I there? I see a clock tower. And so it's very important to slow down and stay with the experience rather than what, is, than what the experience means. And I, I think what Tina's saying, too, about the time is as the practice progresses and as the stillness uh, and the silence deepen and the jhana factors arise, it's easier and easier to sit longer. It's not painful. It's, it's comfortable and it's actually pleasurable. So when one gets to that stage where that's developing, where she talked about the momentary, when it shifts into the towards access concentration, it gets very comfortable and very pleasant and it's very easy. And then as you're approaching absorption energy, then it's very even easier and even more comfortable. So to, so to say, uh, right now, sit three or four hours, that could be challenging. But if you're in access near jhana, it's not. And so a lot of people can, who normally can't sit that long. Uh, I don't think I'd ever sat that long before. Uh, it only hurts when you get up. Yeah. Because <laughs> you can't feel it when you're in there. And then you settle back down and you, and you go back into that deep space. And so it's not uncomfortable, but 
The other thing, too, is that in this practice, Pauxida really it wants you to have a comfortable posture. And so if it means sitting in a chair, he gets the you know, Westerners aren't used to, haven't been raised sitting on floors on Zafus. And so, I mean, of course, his preference would be that you sit on the floor. But he told us, if you're sitting three hours and you need to use a chair, use a chair, because sitting on a cushion isn't the whole point of this practice. You're not learning how to sit on a cushion on the floor. That's not what you're learning. There's, there are other things that are more important in the practice than sitting on a zafu. If you're going to sit for long periods and you need to use a chair, use a chair. He, he was more concerned with keeping the spine straight rather than people would want to like, yeah. lay down or recline. Some people had injuries and things and he allowed them to do it, but he, he would say again and again that it's, just, it's not as good. The energy is different when your spine is reclined than when it's upright. So he really encouraged, at a minimum, to sit in a chair. Yeah, we found that it was energetically, at some point, it becomes a real problem mm-hmm. if you're not upright. There's a lot of ways to be upright in a chair and have your feet on the floor and, and really have a, an excellent meditation posture in a chair. That helps a lot, too, if you're looking at extending. In a daily practice, if the minimum, I don't know, 30 minutes? Sure. If that's what somebody can do, I think that's great. <coughs> okay. Okay. I have two questions. Um, the first one is related to this question. Um, talk to some people, heard from some people that say that after a while, in relation to how long you can meditate, they develop an internal clock, so they know exactly how long they meditated. They don't need to have a watch down there. They can tell about oh, 60 minutes or so. Or, you know, something like that. Yeah. I can story tell by the pain in my butt. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll have, have, have different clocks. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, is this something that develops after a couple of years? Or, uh, the question is about um, time results, which we actually haven't talked about. This is one of the topics for next month, is the jhana masteries which are, there's five jhana masteries, and that's one of them where, again, this is one of the things that you have to do in the Pauxidao tradition. I don't know if others have that as part of it or not, but part of this is that in, in the jhana absorption, you aren't really aware of what's of time passing so much. And so developing the skill that at a certain time the meditation ends is part of the jhana masteries. And so that's something that can be cultivated even without being in a jhana. I heard Deepama. I don't know if anyone's familiar with Deepama, but was a wonderful meditation master, a woman who could sit down and do this for like two days, eight hours, three minutes, and 19 seconds, and people would be timing her, and she could do it over that length of time. It, do, it is something that develops. Yeah. It, it is. You know, part of it is that both the sensitivity that develops, where you're just becoming so sensitive to what's going on, it becomes really quite, quite easy to detect that. And as Tina said, because it's one of the jhana masteries, if you are at the point of absorption, then that is expected. It has to be developed. And so normally when someone's getting close to access, they start really developing the, the uh, time resolve because your the two time resolve, she, or excuse me, jhana masteries you referred to is, is entering the jhana when, when the meditator basically makes the resolve and exiting when the meditator makes the resolve and having them be accurate. Mm-hmm. 
So that is something that, does, that is cultivated, it is developed, and all of these things, when they're required, somehow one can do it. Okay. Um, my second question relates to your talk on effort. And again, I've, I've heard people say, well, I've given up. I used to meditate, but I don't do it anymore. It seems to me that effort is complemented in a negative way by doubt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Some people just don't think there's any effect there or whatever, and they oh, get distracted by the things and then they give up. Sure. The the question was about the relationship uh, of effort to doubt. That pe- there are people who meditate sometimes for periods of time, maybe years, who eventually give it up because there's a way they feel like they're not making progress. Is what I was hearing. But, okay. It, the, yes, that's quite true. And and in this practice, particularly if one doesn't know to be present with what's actually being experienced be it a hindrance or, or defilement in the Kalesha category, then one is expecting again and again to have stillness, to have silence, to have absorption. And so there's, it's sort of like, I'm showing up every day, and I'm in line to get a job here, and every day I get turned away at the door. So they can really build a kind of resentment and anger about it, saying, I'm doing my part. I'm showing up. I'm on the cushion. I'm on the cushion every day. I've been on the cushion every day for five years, and I haven't gotten anything. So you see, it's really focusing on the result. And again, it's backing up that effort to say, okay, right now, what's happening? Well, you know, I'm, I'm feeling uneasy. You know, well, what's, what's the uneasiness? I'm afraid. I'm, I'm concerned about safety. If I, if I get absorption... Uh, maybe I won't be safe in absorption. Well, okay, that's, that's a legitimate issue that's coming up, and it's getting in the way of the meditation. So there's ways to, to work with that, to really say, okay, let's really, really feel that fear. What does that really feel like? Where is it? How does it manifest? And then conversely, what's, where's the fear uh, not in your body? You know, well, it's not in my feet. Well, what's in your feet? I feel peace in my feet. I feel grounded in my feet. okay. And so that's, you know, you, you can work with that. There's a way to work with what's actually happening. But it's, it's a willingness not to turn away and not to manage. And it's also, there isn't a contract here. You can't say, I can, I'm, I'm going to put in 20 years and I'm going to get a gold watch. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. Because there is grace in this practice, too. You know, we show up, we try to really be present for what's happening and open and work with effort. And there's a way where we, we don't know what's going to happen. And in fact, it's not the result we're after. It's purification of mind. That's the, that's the reason the Buddha introduced this practice. That's the whole reason for the Samatha practice. It's just to allow the mind to be present, to purify with whatever's going on. Did that answer your question? Okay. Yeah, and I would also say that, like, for us, we got a question last month about, um, what, about our own practices, and, and we do numerous different practices. This isn't the only one we do. And this is why the Buddha offered, I think, so many different practices when somebody's having doubt. You know, in fact, in, in this tradition, before going on to Vipassana, in the last part of the Samatha practice, there's the Brahma Viharas, and then there's the three protective meditations, the recollection of the Buddha, the um, foulness, which is the corpse meditation, and then the recollection of death. And so all of these, and then there's all the Vipassana practices, of course. And um, all of these are designed to do certain things. So if one starts having doubt, 
maybe recollection of death would be a good one to use at that time because I could die tomorrow and do I really want to die and, and have a lot of hindrances that I'm that are still present, you know, or maybe loving kindness for oneself or or the Buddha to know that thousands of other practitioners have done this and to be inspired by that. That's why I think there is a skillful means in not just, as Stephen was saying, white-knuckling it, but really looking at where is their skillfulness in using a lot of the, Buddha, the practices that are part of this tradition. By the way, welcome back, Lee. Were you in Burma? Yes, ma'am. Oh, welcome back. I'd love to hear about that. Feeling whether you're in the stream or not, you're carried along by the current. So I'm imagining without a whole lot of effort that I'm not. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think you've outlined the basic ingredients, which is, you know, you notes what's going on and then go back to your, to the object. But somehow maybe the temptation is, oh, I'm not in this dream is there something I can do to help myself get back there besides just the basic practice that I've been doing and maybe at the moment doesn't seem to be working that well? Yeah, so in, in this instance, are, are you speaking from personal ex- experience? Or? Uh, I would say yes. Okay. Uh, when, when, you are, when you are engaging this meditation and there's a sense that it's developing properly, how do you know that? Well, in my case, I think in, in just from the matter of concentration, there's kind of a, you know, it's like I think you guys have mentioned, there's sort of an effortless feeling, you know, like, oh, I've fallen into this groove. It's just going. I'm being carried along in it. I'm not necessarily trying hard to concentrate, but it's just happening. And it comes and goes, say, maybe it doesn't come as much as I would like. Um, so I think, hmm, I'd like to find that groove again. You know, I mean, So that's kind of like what you were talking about at the very beginning, trying to retrieve pleasant experiences, so gaining ideas beginning to intrude there. I'm not happy anymore with the way it is, it's the way I want it to be. So I can kind of see that, but can I have... Can I have it all? <laughs> right. It's, it, it's then a matter, this is a matter, uh, a time of surrendering accomplishment. It's recognizing that there's something that's trying to grab it. There's something that's wanting more and wanting more of this. And so it's looking at that. Okay, what's, what's really going on here? You know, what's, what are you really experiencing? And, and through sort of feeling it in the body, what's, what's feeling like something's missing? what's feeling like it wants more. We can often detect that there is, yeah, there is a kind of a, uh, you know, we might call it greed in the, as a defilement, but there's just something that's wanting more. It's, it was really nice, I want more of that. And so really just, just finding that and being present with that feeling that I want more. And we, and we begin to feel that. Where's that in the body? You know, well, it's in my chest. I feel this kind of ache. You know, I'm making this up, of course, but, but I'm feeling it like this. It's, there's an ache in my chest, and there's a kind of hollowness in my stomach and the guts. There's a way then we recognize, well, what is that? And staying with that, 
you know, and again, this is something that you can work with for the teacher if you're on retreat, but it's, it's recognizing that, uh, that feeling. And by staying present with that, there's a way we have compassion. We bring compassion and kindness to it. And it begins to lessen a bit. And we recognize, you know what? This isn't really greed. It's really a feeling of commitment. You know, it's really a kind of a hunger to return home. That's what I'm feeling. Okay, well, let's work with returning home. You know, bring that to your practice. You see. And then when you meet the object with the energy of returning home, you know, something happens. How does that sound? No, that's, that sounds great. I was, as you were talking, I was kind of thinking, oh, but my temptation, my habit is to, oh, now... I'm not getting what I want. Oh, I'm being greedy. Oh, you're a bad guy for being greedy and getting lost on that track instead of doing the compassionate uh, observation of of what's going on and just being with that. Yeah, and if if you're feeling bad and it's, I feel like I'm a terrible, terrible person, well, what does that feel like? How do you know that experience? You know, where's that located? How, you know, and then again, same thing. Well, I've always been a performer. I always know, I can tell when I'm doing well because I'm doing, people like what I'm doing, so, and they won't like me unless I perform. So it's, you know, it's just, it's, again, it's working with what's really present. And, and it's, again, we're speaking in somewhat in hypothetical, so it's a little different. But, you know, if we, if, if we were on retreat working together, this is kind of the, the way we'd work with the Kalashas as they would come up, you know, authentically for you. Well, and, and also, I mean, this is, you know, if you look at the Four Noble Truths, the first one is that life is either suffering or unsatisfactory or something, but that these things always are going to be arising, and that's really what brings people to liberation, ultimately. And so the fact that you're finding things that are unpleasant, that you would like to have stop, or you're missing something that you think you'd like to have more of, you know, in themselves, if there's a presence with that arising, there, over time, we can see how painful it is to stay with those states. And it's like, you know, that analogy of holding a burning coal. It's not like you have to sit there and think, oh gosh, do I want to hold this coal? Hmm. You know, you just drop it because you can see that it's hurting you. Ultimately, they say there's two paths. One is through joy and one is through suffering. And most people end up, the suffering one becomes compelling. And so that's part of the practice too, is to Recognize when those are happening as a method of dropping the coal. And the concentration then becomes somewhat of an antidote because it, it becomes something that replaces those hindrances that are causing the suffering. Okay, maybe that last part, because again, as you were talking, then more ideas come to my mind. But we're talking about concentration practice, yet when we discuss how to work with these things, it sounds awfully... Vipassani, uh, and like I'm not really concentrating anymore. I'm doing all this investigation of what's going on. But it sounds like at the end you were saying that by returning to the concentration, you in effect are dealing with these things. Well, the difference, I think, if you look at, at the mindfulness that we've learned in the Mahasi Sayadaw tradition versus, say, a concentration practice like this where you're really staying just with one object that's predetermined is really in, I think, what is being built. Because with the concentration practice, you're building a turning away. 
a disinterest. And, and you're doing that also with the mindfulness, so I'm not saying you're not, but with the mindfulness, you're also building a capacity to stay with the momentary awareness, whatever's arising. They're slightly different. And so in this one, rather than say with the mindfulness where if something came up, you might just keep noting it until it went away and then you'd note whatever else was predominant and then you'd note this one, you're only staying with something so long as it's taking you away from the object. The minute that it's not taking you away from the object, you're going back. That's really the main difference. And you can do this in your own practice daily instead of, say, really exploring that hindrance and noting it and feeling it and kind of hanging around in it for a while. The minute you can return to the object, you're doing that because you're building the muscle of not caring about the hindrance, of being disinterested. In the, you see, see the difference? Yeah. And you keep trying to come back. Uh, you know, when, you, when you feel like you've dealt with it, a little bit, you come back to the object. If you can stay, as Tina says, that's it. You're on the object. Mm-hmm. Right. So th- this isn't deep psychology or therapy. We're trying to find root causes. We're trying to say, you know, as, as Tina gave an example, uh, I think Guy Armstrong used, if, if you're going down, you know, down a pathway, I think you're skating down a pathway, and in the Vipassana, there's a way that one can move around things. And with this practice, when you're running dead into it and you are on your butt, and you can't move any way at all, something has to be done. And we've got to work with it enough so that you can get over this and then resume your path, you know, zipping down this path. And that's what we're working with. But it's, it's the reality of humans. So again, we're not trying to make do deep psychology. We're not therapists at all. We're trying to say, what can we do to keep you on your object? Right, and so the mindfulness can be a useful tool, but not as you're not sort of doing a little bit of concentration, then a little bit of mindfulness, and a little because really then you're you're primarily doing the mindfulness practice. You're not really doing the concentration. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah. Would you say something about um, at what point does looking for and applying skillful means to deal with things that are coming up, at what point is it skillful to stop doing that, to just surrender and to let go? Because you can can reach this point, and then the skillful means almost seem like they get in the way. We just answered your own question, is when you can surrender and let go. So it's when there's enough relaxation or ease with this hindrance or defilement that one can return back. It's pretty clear when that happens. It's just because it's, the meditator will not be able to even locate the object sometimes. So if they can't locate the object, it's pretty hard to do this practice. And if there's a little bit of release, and then the meditator's encouraged, okay, let's, right now, let's be with the object. And all of a sudden, they're on the object. It's, it's enough. Yeah, I think there, there is a way where, because this is purification of mind, you might go like looking for hindrances or think somehow that was the point. And that's, that's not really the point, is to go out searching for them, because that in itself can be... Well, it's just sort of more attachment to the story. You know, I mean, even if we're suffering, sometimes we hold on to that story because there's identity in it. And so that's not anything that would be cultivated in this practice. But if in this one, it's always just however long it takes to 
have the ability, to, the muscle, to go back to the object and turn away from the hindrances. And then in that, what's being cultivated is the jhana factors, which we talked about last week. So every time there's a turning away from a hindrance, there's a cultivation of a jhana, of a jhana factor. If the hindrances are being becoming the meditation object, the jhana factors are dropping. And the concentration is waning. And the concentration is waning. waning. That's where, because this isn't a momentary concentration practice, and we're building something different, it's really only, as Stephen has said, it's only as long as the object is pulling you off, or as long as the, the hindrance is pulling you off of the object. That's, and so there can be a testing all the time of the ability to go back to the object. So basically, if one encounters a hindrance that becomes overwhelming at a certain point, it will release, and you're saying simply return at that point to the object, to the uh, to the to the breath, yes. to the yeah. Yes. Well, okay. like I was meditating this morning, and I realized I was up to ten. I was using the counting. And I could have easily spent five minutes thinking about why I, why I did that and what hindrance was it and all these other things, and instead I just started going back down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it was cultivating, you know, there was noticing that that had happened, mm-hmm. but instead of spending all kinds of time trying to figure out why and what's going on and so on, there was just a returning to the object. You see what I mean? That's a real simple example, but... You're saying, okay, should you know, should one figure out what hindrance came up and work with it and all that? And there was an ability to go back in and out of distraction, so there wasn't a need. Yeah, um, I'm asking that, but I'm also asking something a little bit different. It's when it's such a powerful distraction, when the hindrance or the uh, the defilement is so in your face um, that it almost like blinds you to everything else. And then the meditator uh, looks for skillful means to deal with it. So it's very subtle. We did this during the retreat. It's a very, very subtle kind of... What was your experience of it during the retreat? (laughs) Well, I can talk if you want. It's, it, it, well, you see, it seemed like a, like a tremendous gift to have this opportunity to be with that experience. And I was walking a very fine line, but I couldn't have walked it without you helping me. I mean, that's just the truth of it. I would not have known enough how to be with it. And afterwards, I have the intuitive resonance of the experience, but I can't really articulate how, you know, it was this enormous confrontation and then realizing there was nothing I could do and letting go. That's the point. That's the point on the big stuff when we really realize there's nothing that we can do. We can't manage it. We can't avoid it. Mm-hmm. So once we really turn and face it, accept it, surrender with it, that's what releases the energy enough that generally the meditator can return to the object. So so you're talking about hindrances or defilements that are a little more entrenched, a little more 
key to the sense of the person's personal story. Yeah, we were actually talking about this yesterday and thinking about what are some useful aspects of for a meditator in the practice, and one is clearly the ability to actually be with what's really happening, rather than sort of pretending or something. So that's you're talking about, okay, knowing that something's arising, it's powerful, and being able to meet it to the point where the energy of that hindrance or that issue, whatever, starts diffusing. But then equally important is the ability to let go, because there is a way where we can even lean into a hindrance because it's familiar or there's reasons or whatever. And or we so, just, be- or we or, just believe or it. Or we believe that it's who we are or whatever. So the letting go is equally important. And that, again, is the hot call. If we can really see how painful it is and how it's not necessary to hold anymore, we won't do anything but let go. And sometimes it has to be really painful. But and the, to, the, the point Tina makes is great because not everything that comes up is a hot call. Only some are hot coals that are clearly hot coals and are scalding. So they've got to be dealt with. There's no other way but to, but to put it down. And, and the meditator has it clenched in their fist. So the job that we're doing is how do you get them to open their fist? And for them to realize, ow, and put it down. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the task. So in, in my experience, my recent experience, the hot coal I didn't even know was in my hand until I was, like, ready to die. I mean, I didn't even know I had a hot coal. So, and I tripped myself up by saying, I don't know how to let go. Right. You see? But that was the truth. That was the truth of the moment. When you were there and practicing, you didn't know how to let go. You knew you were holding it, and you didn't let go. But see, you couldn't go to your object when that was happening, could you? No. Right. So it had to be addressed in some fashion. And it's really the slowing down, slowing down, stopping all the strategies that all of us are so great at, and just sitting for a moment and saying, my hand is burning. How do I open my hand? And that's really where the work is. But again, enough to drop the coal, and the relief and coming back without the burning, without the clenched fist, returning to the object. Well, and this is where that first part of actually having a transparency to oneself about what's arising. So, you know, the first part is actually being able to be with and admit to oneself what is actually happening. If you're meditating and you're having a recursive thought that just won't go away, to pretend like it's not there is even one level off of knowing it's there. When you said you didn't know you had a hot coal, first knowing you had a hot coal was, without knowing that, you would have never dropped it. Just to be able to actually be with what's really happening for ourselves is the first step, and then the letting go is another step. So I, I, I just want to say, in relation to this, Lee's question about practicing and practicing a long time and then doubt arising it seemed to me that that was my experience that I had done this over and over and over and over and over again and um, you know I deserved something and I had to kind of address this issue of, of that on top of everything else 
well, after going through this for two months, what would be your, what would you tell us you learned about the, about the purification of mind? Put me on the spot. Well, um, just, just anything. I mean, really, I mean, what, well, was it is, worth even doing this? This is really, you know, what we're talking about right now is there's some deep, profound insight or lesson in it. And I've done this practice for five years, and I realized that having done this retreat, that I could do it for 25 more years if I continued to do it the way I was doing it. But there's some sense of knowing that this kind of thing has to be addressed and let go of. And people have a very hard time with that. Or I have a very hard time with that. And the people that I know that have tried to do this practice do as well. So many people end up being, you know, annoyed, pissed off from trying so hard and not getting anywhere. Yeah, and, and that then, goes back to Lee's question that they do, some people, people do quit the practice for that reason. Yeah, it seems really important. It seems really, really an important thing. And um, it almost seems to me that, um, well, I believe this now, that you can't, you can't even come close to these states until you can get through this initial kind of thing. Right. There's got to be purification at each level, which in effect allows a kind of access to the next level. Mm-hmm. And that's why with the jhana practice, that's why the Sayadaw teaches that there has to be mastery of each jhana, because one has to have the purification at that level, otherwise one cannot go to the next level. There's not a stability. You're building a kind of a pyramid, and if you rush any portion of it, the whole thing collapses. There is, though, you know, we were talking the other day about a metaphor. I used to do a lot of scuba diving, and I think this is a great metaphor because in this practice, the range between the first sit and first jhana is, is the first sit, the first time you sit, and the first jhana is much more, much different than the whole rest of it. And it's, it's like it's much more challenging. So in, in the scuba diving metaphor, even if you don't scuba dive, I think you could get this. You know, you're putting on all this weight and you've got all this extra baggage and it's heavy and you've got tanks and you can't walk and you've got flippers on, you know. And you're going down to the beach and it's hard just to get down there. And then you get there and the waves are crashing on you. And so they call this the surf zone where when you look at a beach of the ocean, all the waves are crashing. And so not only do you have all this stuff on you, all this extra baggage, but you're going through waves that are trying to stop you. And you have to go out there, and somehow you're gulping down water, and you think you're going to drown, and waves are knocking you around, and so on. But if you get through the surf zone, at some point, the waves don't break anymore. Then you're bobbing around at the top, and if you can actually get below the surface of the water and start scuba diving underneath, say, 30 feet down even, it's peaceful and calm, and you feel weightless. You're like an astronaut. You feel like you, you don't weigh anything, and it's silent and pristine and effortless, really. But you have to get through the surf zone. 
So this practice, really the hardest part of the whole thing is getting through the search zone. There's a lot of technical difficulties you have to know about when you're actually scuba right. diving so right. you don't you die. But well, this practice, too, you've got to know how to breathe. You've got to know where the air valves are. You've got to know yeah. where your There's, knife is to cut yourself free from kelp. Um, yeah. There's all these things. But, 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 the it, but there is zone. a way. I mean, you can't, you can't rush the surf zone. You yeah. need that purification of mind and really of personality, of the defilements and the hindrances. Those need to be purified because that energy adds to the, adds to the practice. Well, and that's why there's been, unfortunately, a positioning in the West, I don't, maybe it's like this in other places too, of the jhanas as something to do because it's got, you've got really great bliss states. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of why people like, are drawn to it. And that wasn't why, that's not what it's called in the Vasudhimaga. It's called the purification of mind. And there's a reason why it's called that, because... The, the states that happen as a result of the purification are just a byproduct. They aren't the purpose of the practice. And somehow I think we've, we've believed that they are the purpose. It's the fruition it's so, of the purification. It's so Western, you know. Here we are. We just want the goodies. And that isn't even the point of doing the jhana practice. The point is the purification. That's purification the whole reason. Mind, right? These are just byproducts. And that's what yeah. I got from my retreat then. And that's what you got. I got that from the retreat. But what, what you also got was you learned, I mean, this is what I'll share what you told me at one point, was you learned to show up for each meditation and not know what, what was going to happen and be willing to face whatever was happening without using any strategy, any device, anything to avoid or chase. I mean, how wonderful is that? It actually felt like a form of liberation. Right. It did. Right. It did. And in terms of the effort, um, I never realized the capacity that I had the capacity to practice at that level right. so consistently. So it was really a remarkable experience. And now that you know that, you see, you return to this practice later, you know you can get into the surf zone and you're not going to get killed. Yeah. And you, and you know also too. that there's times when you drop below the surf zone and there's something really still and pristine to say, wow, I can actually get through this. And there is that, what's it called, the, when you go beneath, beneath and surfing? Or whatever. Into the quiet area. quiet <laughs> area. When you go, when you drop 30 feet down, for example. When you're actually scuba diving. When you're scuba yeah. diving, right. <laughs> Yeah, and it's true that going through that surf zone in the times that we've both done the jhanas numerous times, it gets shorter and shorter and shorter. Because Because there's more trust and faith also. I I know know it's possible to get through it. I will get through it. And and the great benefit of this practice is when you go back into the world as a layperson, there's a cleanness of the personality, and there's a way that there's more of a willingness to meet what's happening. It's not that we're, we, we don't get snagged. It's that we know we can meet unpleasant and pleasant experiences and not just get pulled away or not run from them. Right. Yeah, that muscle, there's both the muscle of turning away from getting sort of hooked, hooked into things, and there's also the ability to meet them when the situation calls for it. So all of those things are cultivated. That's incredibly wholesome, and it's very useful when you're out in the world just living your life, too. And think about it from the perspective of karma and rebirth. If you're, not, if you're not getting pulled by these things or avoiding these things, 
you're really not going to be producing as much karma. You're, you're really going to have, you know, in, in the Buddhist structure, you're really going to be conditioning a better rebirth be, because of the mind state that's being experienced and lived and cultivated. How does that sound? Sign me up. <laughs> I'd like to add on another example, uh, in addition to the scuba diving example, uh, addressing this issue of... Um, maybe the issue of doubt or expecting results. Um, as you know, I just came back from Pauktoya and uh, had the opportunity to talk to many other yogis there. And um, one yogi from uh, Singapore uh, had been going there f- off and on for five years. And uh, he said that, um, you know, it, the tough part is getting to the first jhana. And he said it's like trying to drive a truck. And once you manage to drive the truck the first time, even though it's really jerky and you're in the wrong gear and everything else, you sort of smash through to the other jhanas. So hang on and just get to that first jhana. It may take a long time, but it's not going to take the same amount of time, apparently, to get to the other jhanas. And he based this on the fact that over this roughly five-year period, he had been going to the interviews with the Sayadaw, and he had heard these stories from many other yogis and monks there. So he knew it wasn't something that was being made up. Yeah, it was a consistent story. Thanks mm-hmm. for sharing that. Yes. I'm going to give a few different options for the instructions, and I encourage you to just try uh, things and see how it goes, and then we'll have some more time for questions at the end. Seat yourself in an upright posture with your spine straight and your shoulder blades relaxed down your back towards the floor and your hands comfortably on your legs or in your lap. With eyes closed, allow your attention to be lightly placed where you notice the movement of breath between the nostrils and the upper lip, the anapana spot. Your object is to know the sensation of the movement of breath as it passes the anapana spot on each inhalation and exhalation. When the attention wanders from knowing the breath of the anapana spot, gently return it without judgment or self-criticism. One method of concentrating awareness is to count breaths. The Sayadaw suggests counting from one to eight and back down from eight to one with each progressive inhalation and exhalation as a unit. For example, a single inhalation and one out breath is one. Once awareness begins collecting, you can drop the counting if you like. Another method to concentrate awareness is to notice the length of the breath, long or short. This is not an evaluation of the mind, but an aware knowing. It is also not noting, as in associating a word with the knowing. Simply upon the in-breath, one knows whether it's long or short. On the out-breath, one knows whether it's long or short. As with the counting, this can be dropped once concentration develops.
how was that for you? What did you notice? Too short. Too short, yes. yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Did anyone try either the counting or the short long or both? I did the short long. Uh-huh. How was that? Yeah. Um, oh. Is this on? Just flip a switch. It should be. There you go. Uh, it it does actually uh, help settle the mind fairly quickly. I have a hard time with the counting because then the nu- the number actually becomes what I start to watch rather than the breath. Yeah. Um, and I and I went through this on on the retreat where um, whether I was staying on the spot or whether I was following the long or the short following the breath so mm-hmm. I kind of developed this ability to stay right on the spot and just for however long I know the breath at the spot right. and however short I know the breath at the spot and um, by trying to refine the awareness or the focus on long and short really does settle it down. So even if the mind drifts, if I come back and try that, um, I can bring myself in pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And something that you said um, earlier about having these other thoughts come up, but choosing not to be interested or you know, just choosing to go back in spite of that fact uh, using that long short technique is a skillful means for me mm-hmm. so. it's also the quality that I was talking about earlier the quality of knowing when you're able to stay there and have the breath pass and knowing the passing as long or short mm-hmm. rather than feeling the end of the breath as long or short right, right. Right. Yeah, it's all just, again, it's just a device to give the awareness more to work with mm-hmm. until the concentration is naturally doing that. A lot of times on the, the awareness of, this, of the spot, well, it's strong when you start your in-breath. I mean, you can really feel it. And then there's a period of space between the exhale where that's not being stimulated but the um, awareness can stay there and then then you're there for the exhale you know and just kind of tapers with it mm-hmm. yeah there can be a waiting and then this is also something as the practice deepens if say you're on retreat or even at home but especially on retreat the breath becomes so subtle that cultivating that the attention even when there isn't a real strong sensation that there can just be an awaiting the attention's just there being present for whatever's going to arise next and so it's good to cultivate that even even now because it becomes more and more important yeah because it seems like it there's usually one point where you can really recognize really feel it right yeah it's the example that I think we've used before it's like being a toll taker on a bridge 
that you're waiting in the booth, you're waiting on the Anapana spot, and whether there are cars passing, breaths passing or not, you still stay in the booth. And if there's a time where there's no cars, you don't go out in the, in the lane looking for traffic. <laughs> you know, you wait in the booth. So it's that, yeah, exactly what you're saying, of just staying with the knowing. That's the quality of knowing. And then allowing the breath to pass. Well, thank you all for being here. Thank you.